You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. Russian retaliation, a cruise missile striking a military facility near Kyiv, just hours after Russia's prized warship, the Moskva, sinks to the bottom of the Black Sea. The Ukrainians taking credit. The Kremlin still adamant fire detonated stored ammunition. The Ukrainians say it was damaged by their anti-ship missiles. The Pentagon says there's no reason to dispute Ukraine's claims, and Russia seems to have moved other vessels further south. In the east, Russian forces continue to build fighting reported in Izium and the shelling in Kharkiv as Russian troops advance towards their main target in the east, the Donbass. During the 50 days of full-scale invasion of the Russian Federation, they showed that Donbas is the main target for Russia. It is Donbas that Russia wants to destroy in the first place. It is the Luhansk and Donetsk regions that Russian troops are destroying, as if they only want stones to be left and no people to be left at all. Ben Weidman has the latest from the east of Ukraine. Julia, overnight there was Russian bombardment on the capital of the Kyiv. The first time there's been such a bombardment since Russian forces pulled out of the north-central part of Ukraine. And it comes at a time when life was sort of getting back to what passes for normal in Kyiv. Now, the Russians say that the bombardment of Kyiv was in retaliation for Ukrainian artillery fire on a Russian village just over the border. Meanwhile, here in eastern Ukraine, the military is preparing for what many fear will be a massive Russian offensive to try to seize the entire eastern part of the country. We were able to go to the easternmost city under Ukrainian government control and found a city very much on edge. Denise loads food in his car for a delivery run. The supplies sorted by volunteers in this old warehouse were donated from around Ukraine and abroad. Denise was a musician before the war. My town broken. Severo Donetsk is the city furthest east under Ukrainian government control under constant bombardment from Russian forces nearby. The supplies Denise and other volunteers deliver are what keep this city alive. Two missiles landed outside Nadia's decrepit Soviet-era apartment building. The strain of living under the shelling more than she can take. It's hard, she says. I can't stay in this room. I'm so afraid. I want it to be quiet and calm again. With Russian forces massing in the east, there will be no quiet. There will be no calm. Sitting on a hospital bed, Ulyana recounts the night her house was hit. I was in the kitchen and it started, she says. Her home is now in ruins. More than 20 corpses lie scattered in the hospital's morgue, wrapped in sheets and blankets, awaiting burial. On the outskirts of the city, more evidence of the toll war has taken. This is a hastily dug graveyard that was started since the war began. Just look at the dates, 7th of April, 9th of April, 
3rd of April, 4th of April. It goes on and on and on. And more graves will soon be filled. And Thursday, Ukrainian officials say that two evacuation buses uh, trying to get people out of areas under bombardment uh, were shot upon by Russian forces, killing seven people, wounding 27. Now, when we were in Severodonetsk, I spoke to the head of the hospital there and I asked him about these so-called humanitarian corridors to evacuate civilians and he told me if he looks at the experience of his city that these humanitarian corridors are a myth the russians simply don't respect them julia ben we've been there and on to a sobering warning from the cia director william burns he says russia's potential to use tactical or low-yield nuclear weapons in ukraine cannot be taken lightly and the Washington Post reports Moscow has sent a formal diplomatic note to the United States saying shipments of, quote, sensitive weapons to Ukraine are adding fuel to the conflict and there could be, quote, unpredictable consequences. Jeremy Diamond is in Washington. Jeremy, I think we all remember Ukraine's foreign minister's message to the West, which was weapons, weapons, weapons. The United States announcing they're responding. I don't think anybody would be surprised that the Russians are alarmed by what they're seeing and hearing here. The question is, how concerned is the U.S. government by Russia's threats, if this report is correct? Well, listen, Julia, what's most interesting here is the timing of this. The U.S. has now provided more than $3 billion of military assistance uh, to the Ukrainians. And uh, recently, just this week, President Biden approving an additional $800 million. But this latest package includes, included much heavier weaponry than Previously, uh, we saw several uh, MI-17 helicopters going the Ukrainians' way, 155-millimeter howitzer guns, uh, are, which is uh, powerful artillery to match the Russian uh, power uh, of artillery as well, radar defense systems, uh, coastal drones, etc. So the U.S. is really stepping up the types of weaponry, not only the quantity, but the types of weaponry that it is providing to the Ukrainians. And it was just as those reports were emerging about what the U.S. was going to provide the Ukrainians uh, that apparently, According to the Washington Post, uh, Russia sent this formal diplomatic letter to the United States warning uh, the U.S. of unintended consequences and saying that the U.S. is adding fuel to uh, this uh, already uh, very, very hot uh, conflict. Now, will the, the question here is, will this change anything from the U.S.'s perspective in terms of what kind of a security assistance they're providing to the Ukrainians? And I think what's becoming increasingly clear is that while the U.S. has been cautious in terms of the types of weapons and how it is providing those weapons to the Ukrainians still resisting, for example, sending any fighter jets directly to the Ukrainians or even participating in a transfer of fighter jets from another uh, NATO country to the Ukrainians. Uh, the U.S. is growing bolder in terms of the types of assistance it's providing, like I said, those heavier weapon systems, and they're growing less concerned about what, uh, how Russians will interpret that. Uh, earlier this week, the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, was asked about the risk of Russia interpreting these heavier weapon systems as some kind of escalation. And he said, we'll leave that to Putin. We'll leave that to the Kremlin to decide how they're going to respond. But we're going to continue to help the Ukrainians. And that's exactly what the U.S. is doing right now. Julia. Jeremy, and the press secretary at the Pentagon was asked this again yesterday. And he said, look, I'm not going to provide details of, of timing or how these weapons are entering Ukraine for, for obvious reasons. But you have to assume, and he was asked this too, that these lines are now a target. These supply lines are a target for Russian forces too. Yeah, it's it's certainly a, a risk here uh, that the Russians, as they 
uh, issue this diplomatic warning, could also be considering hitting uh, those supply lines of weapons, perhaps even on NATO territory, because remember, most of these weapons transfers, many of them at least, are happening uh, at the Poland-Ukrainian border. Uh, but one thing that the White House has been unmistakable about throughout this conflict is that the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory. And so you have to assume that if there is some kind of a Russian strike on NATO territory, on those supply lines, that that would be met by a forceful uh, NATO response. And of course, the risk of escalation, the risk of this growing into uh, a world war uh, heightens uh, should, should something like that happen. Jeremy Diamond, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. To China now, where thousands more COVID cases are being reported following an alarming spike on Thursday. That's when 23,000 new infections were recorded in Shanghai, accounting for 95% of all cases in China that day. And with more than 40 cities under lockdown, officials are grappling with the growing economic impact of the virus. David Culver is in Shanghai for us. Uh, the impact on the economy and the social consequences of that inextricably linked, David, unemployment, small business in particular. What are we hearing about their concerns and the level of their concerns? Well, especially when you look at the map, Julia, and you look at where these more than 40 cities are located with either full or partial lockdowns, you're talking about most of them along the coast. And so talking about major ports, including here in Shanghai, and that's going to affect shipping, which in turn is going to continue to strain the global supply chain. But as a, a, uh, the cases continue you know, to climb up here, it feels as though they're trying to balance the stopping of, of the rapid spread and at the same time trying to give people the hope or, as some perceive it, the illusion that this lockdown is going to end anytime soon. A few steps of freedom granted to some Shanghai residents strolling their own neighborhoods as if taking in some strange new world. But where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. Most shops still closed and public transportation halted. Still, this woman can't hold back her joy, recording as she and her neighbors roam the empty streets. After forcing 25 plus million people into weeks of harsh lockdown, Government officials facing mounting pressure lifted some restrictions. For communities like mine, without a positive case in the last seven days, that meant we could actually step outside our apartments. My neighbors enjoying the taste of relative freedom, and so too our pets, eager to stretch their legs, still keeping within the confines of our compound. The extent of my freedom is all the way to here, the compound gate, still double locked. It's been like that for about a month. In recent weeks, we had to get community permission to leave our homes, mostly for COVID tests, of which there were many. We could also step outside to pick up the occasional government distribution. Today's delivery, a bag of rice. But even with heavy restrictions still in place, we have it good, for now at least. The majority of this city remains in hard lockdown, kept to their homes, some hungry and suffering. This woman heard begging in the middle of the night, pleading for fever medicine for her child. And this man, recording his dwindling food supply. Then there are those who've tested positive, tens of thousands being sent to cramped government quarantine centers, whose residents have described a host of problems, facilities that were quickly and apparently poorly constructed. Outside of Shanghai, panic spreading quicker than the virus. The horror stories from China's financial hub have residents in other Chinese cities stocking up, from Suzhou to Guangzhou. Online, sales for prepackaged foods surging. 
This, as China's National Health Commission warns of more cases and publicly calls out Shanghai for not effectively containing the virus, shifting blame to local officials for allowing it to spread to other places. China's strict zero-COVID approach, forcing dozens of cities into weeks-long full or partial lockdowns. Residents in Jilin banging on pots to protest. Most of the 24 million people in the northern Chinese province confined to their homes for more than a month now. Back in Shanghai, the joys of freedom for some might last only a few hours, as it takes just one new case nearby to send them back inside, resetting the clock for their community. Another 14-day sentence in lockdown, a seemingly endless cycle. Incredible report, David. I could ask you 40 questions off the back of that. Just the the sound of people screaming in their apartment buildings there made the hair rise on my arm. Um, But my my primary question, I think, is just how sick are people getting? Those that do get COVID, the hospitalizations, the, the really sick people, do you have a sense of the stats on this? Because as we try and learn to live with COVID, this is, for many in the West, the critical question. What's your sense there? Yeah, so a lot of the times we have to rely on anecdotal evidence of all of this, because as you well know, even if we go back a little over two years ago when you and I were talking about the Wuhan outbreak, something that wasn't as forthcoming was the most accurate data from the National Health Commission, the Chinese government. So what we've looked at here is they're saying that there have been, since the start of this most recent outbreak, more than 200,000 infections, positive cases here in Shanghai alone. Of that, the official count is nine of them are serious or severe critical cases. It seems quite low. A lot of folks who are looking at that are are certainly skeptical and questioning it. And then anecdotally, we're hearing from people online who have told us uh, from multiple different accounts that they have lost loved ones due to the lockdown. Now, is that directly because of contracting COVID? Some say yes, others say no, it's just as collateral damage, if you will, because of just the extreme measures of this lockdown. That said, that has not been put forward by the central government or the National Health Commission. As of now, there are zero deaths in connection with this most recent outbreak. So trying to get those numbers, Julia, is really tough. We have to rely heavily on what we're seeing coming out of social media and the people we're talking to on the ground here. Yeah, and you do a brilliant job. I make that 0.0045% severe, nine out of 200,000. David Culver, thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead. The conflict in Ukraine has two fronts, a physical war that has cost the lives of thousands of innocent citizens and an information war. President Putin's fierce critic, Alexei Navalny, is out with an ambitious plan to provide the truth to Russian citizens, fed a steady stream of government propaganda. How? Well, that story ahead. Welcome back. The highest profile critic of the Putin regime inside Russia is jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Now, from his prison cell, Navalny is calling on the West to launch an unprecedented social media advertising campaign on popular platforms used by Russians like YouTube, WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook. He believes targeted ads would pierce the Russian information bubble and perhaps turn citizens against the wall. In a series of tweets, Navalny says one shot from a javelin costs $230,000. For the same money, we would get 200 million ad views in different formats and provide at least three 
800,000 link clicks or at least 8 million views on a video with the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. He likens the effort to a political campaign with two competing candidates saying, quote, our candidate peace versus Putin's candidate war and peace must win. We can't allow any other outcome. Now, Vladimir Ushkov is a Russian dissident who is now based in London. He's the executive director of Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation. Vladimir, great to have you on the show. A critically important message, I think, from Alexei Navalny. And we can discuss the personal cost to him later, but what do you and he believe could be the consequence of this campaign, the ultimate consequence? Well, the internet has been really the backbone of uh, how Alexei Navalny spread his message and gained recognition. So it's natural that uh, he now calls for use of social media uh, to try to change the perception of Russians, the perception of this war, uh, because unfortunately most Russians are uh, fed information from state TV and other state media, and uh, they uh, are, uh, you know, they, they're just uh, pumping out uh, propaganda about how um, Ukraine is a Nazi state and uh, at the same time they don't say anything about Russian losses and the cost, real, real cost of this war. We've had a guest on in the past week or so talking about Vladimir Putin's approval rating being above 80%. You say there are far fewer people that are core supporters, but most are silent because they're frightened. And I think those of us outside Russia would, would understand that. How strong do you think his support really is or those that would oppose him? And what does it take for them to no longer be silent? Well, it's difficult for uh, to expect people to, to voice their um, uh, concerns about the war. Uh, when you can get uh, detained for a for liking an anti-war post, or you can um, get be detained for um, going out to the streets with a to a, to a protest with just a blank piece of paper. So I think there's a, about 10% of hardcore supporters of Putin. There are 30% of people who um, who actively oppose this war, even though it's hard for them to voice. Uh, their protest, and there's 70% uh, of people who can be swayed by this uh, social media campaign, who are not usually um, interested in politics, and uh, unfortunately who have fed this uh, state propaganda. So I think a massive social media campaign uh, would be quite effective at spreading the words of truth to Russian people. Wow, you're saying 70% of Russian people, if only they knew the truth, about what was going on would no longer be silent. That's that. That would be the the maximum amount. I don't know if they will be uh, silent or not, but at least they will be better they informed would know. about the atrocities that uh, Russia is committing in Ukraine, about the Russian soldiers who are lost in this war, and about the uh, international condemnation of this war. Vladimir, you. And I originally got you on the show to discuss a way that you believe that there is to remove Putin from within. But it requires some nuance in, in how sanctions are applied. And what you want to see is some kind of off ramp 
perhaps for those people, those Russians that have been sanctioned, if they decide to condemn the war in Ukraine, if they decide to condemn or put themselves at least in opposition with this regime, then perhaps there should be a way back and see a removal of the sanctions. But you have three conditions. What are those three conditions? Um, over the last two months, we've seen an avalanche of sanctions against people who matter in Russia, businessmen, members of political um, and economic elite. Um, I think the menace of Putin's regime is so great that we will need to try to seduce these people to uh, the side, the anti-war side, to the Western side. And offering them an off-ramp uh, in this situation out of sanctions would be um, would be rational. Um, it would be a compromise, but I think it's it's a uh, it's a good way forward. So my three conditions were that uh, we shouldn't ease the sanctions for those who have been directly involved in war crimes and human rights abuse. Um, second was that they contribute uh, to the restoration of Ukraine. And third was that they actively, they publicly condemn this war and those people who started it. What about someone like Roman Abramovich, the Chelsea football club owner? He put that into separate hands, admittedly someone who's now, I believe, been sanctioned. But he did say that the net proceeds of that sale of the football club would go into a fund to help the reconstruction of Ukraine. Does someone like him, does he qualify in your mind, perhaps for a, a way out of sanctions? If he is instrumental in uh, ending Putin's regime, if, t if he actively condemns uh, the war and uh, um, if he contributes to restoration of Ukraine, um, I think a gradual easing of sanctions uh, should be considered. At least people who are sanctioned should have, should, should have some motivation uh, to, 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 to end this regime, uh, because only after Putin's reign ends, they can expect the sanctions to be lifted. Vladimir, you and I were talking about the fear at the start of this conversation, the fear of this regime and the consequences is you know better than most. Just this week, an individual who remains in Russia, who spoke to CNN and talked about the regime, he criticized it and then was arrested and has been jailed for 15 days. His name's Vladimir Karamurza. What do you think happens to him if he is allowed out of prison when that 15 days is up? He's already been Vladimir prisoned twice. Vladimir Karamurza is a good uh, friend and ally, and he's an incredibly brave person. Uh, uh, he has been poisoned two times by Russian security agents in Russia, and still he remains there now. Um, he was quite adamant in speaking about the war, and he got this 15-day sentence. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen after he's released, but I sincerely hope that he is free and uh, he's safe. I think we all do. Would Alexei Navalny, will Alexei Navalny, also a close friend of yours, do you think he'll be punished even for sending these messages via social media, via his lawyers, admittedly, calling for this campaign? Will he be punished in prison as a consequence? Well, Alexei Navalny was published for his uh, brave stance and uh, his uh, uncompromising position against Putin's regime with uh, just recently with a nine-year sentence in prison. 
Um, there's not that much more than Russian authorities can do against him. Uh, and uh, he is, uh, just since the start of this brutal and unprovoked war, he has been, um, has been saying words of peace and, and calling Russians to protest and not to be silent in this war. Vladimir, there are those that would say there is more that Russia could do. His, his family, he remains alive. There is worse. Well, um, you know, the story of Alexei Navalny is almost epic. He was poisoned. He miraculously recuperated. He even, uh, through his investigation, arranged a call with one of his assassins. He returned to Russia despite all the threats, and he is now sending the words of truth to Russian people and inspires his team, everybody with, uh, with his voice. Um, I think we've seen a number of miracles in his, uh, in, in, uh, in mm. his story, and I think this miracle will keep him safe and alive. We hope that too. Vladimir, great to get your insights today. Thank you. And you stay safe too, please. Vladimir Ushkov there, the Executive Director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come. How one humanitarian organization is helping refugees in Poland find jobs and helping children get educated. Stay with us. Welcome back. Help Wanted in Poland. The refugee crisis is starting to shift from where can we go to where, to where can we go, to where can we work. Care, a global humanitarian aid agency working to end poverty, is recruiting teachers in Poland. Over the past two weeks, Care and its partners have hosted events to hire Ukrainian-speaking teachers. So far, they've hired 190. The organization is also raising funds for families in Ukraine with the goal of reaching 4 million people with food, water and hygiene kits among other essentials. CARE President and CEO Michelle Nunn joins us now. Michelle, great to have you with us. I know CARE has been at work since the aftermath of World War II, I believe, and you've been involved in many crises and doing what you can to help. Just if you can compare and contrast what you're seeing today to, to other situations where you've provided support. Oh. I think we're having some problem with her sound. Yeah, we have. Okay, we're going to try and reestablish sound with Michelle if we can. I was literally just speaking to her in the break, so I know it's all working. Nope, okay, we're gonna struggle with that for a while and we'll try and get back to her as soon as possible. In the meantime, as harrowing accounts of destruction emerge from Ukraine, so do tales of courage and also survival. CNN's Ed Lavendera speaks to one resident of Mariupol who tried her best to deliver aid and offer support to citizens in hiding while she was running for her life. Listen to this. When the first bomb struck Mariupol, Katya Yerskaya thought her most effective weapon would be a gentle smile and the ability to calm terrified families. She lived in an underground shelter, coordinating relief supplies for the trapped civilians of this besieged city. So you're watching your city get bombed and destroyed. People are being killed. You decide not to leave, but to help. It's uh, horrible that animals didn't allow even children to go out from the city. 
Day by day, the video Katya captured showed life in Mariupol unraveling. She lost touch with the outside world. None of her family and friends outside the city knew if she was alive or dead. Life here was falling into an abyss. It was like Middle Age. Uh, it was like the Middle Ages. Yes. It's almost like you could feel yourself running out of time. There was only so much longer you could stay in Mariupol. I thought I will never go from Mariupol until the end. On March 16th, Katya evacuated. She recorded two short videos on her way out just before seeing a family walking on the side of the road, a mother, grandmother, and two young girls. So we had uh, two free places in our car and we saw this family and we decided to help them. At one of the Russian military checkpoints, they stopped in front of a soldier. And he uh, showed us go out and we began to turn on our car and after that he began to shoot. One of the bullets pierced the car over her head. But in the back seat was 11-year-old Milena Urolova, shot in the face. The Russians, realizing their mistake, sent the girl to a hospital. Katya, now separated, traveled on without knowing if the young girl survived, until... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. CNN found Milena in the basement of a children's hospital in eastern Ukraine after surviving life-saving surgery. For Katya, the relief is overwhelmed by the horrors of what she witnessed. I saw a lot of uh, dead people, a lot of common graves on the street, for example, in my yard. And um, I um, started to believe uh, that they are crazy because they um, were like maniacs. They were maniacs to you? Yes, they, they're, really, they're really crazy, like Nazists in the Second World War. After escaping, Katya remembered the videos she recorded before the Russians ravaged Mariupol. Ukrainians protesting outside the now famous theater that in a matter of weeks would be the site of one of the most grotesque bombings in this war. The theater still intact, the city's buildings unscathed. She sees the peaceful faces of families and children. The video is hard to watch. Are these people alive or left in makeshift graves around the city? Katya Yerskaya doesn't know, and for her there's only one way to deal with this haunting reality. I decided that I will cry. Uh, only when the Ukrainian gets the victory. Ed Lavendera, CNN, Odessa, Ukraine. Powerful woman, powerful people. We're back after this. Welcome back, and I do believe the technology gods are shining on us today because Michelle Nunn is the president and CEO of Global Humanitarian Aid Agency Care, and I do believe she's back, and I do believe we can hear her. Michelle, just speak to me to let me know we can hear you. Yes, I can hear yes, you, and hopefully perfect. you can hear me. Yes, we can. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I asked you before, and I know you had the question, but just to compare, given the decades of work Care has been doing in humanitarian crises all over the world, just how you compare what you're seeing in the Ukraine refugee crisis today? 
Yeah. Well, CARE started 76 years ago, actually, mm. in post-World War II Europe, delivering care packages to those who were hungry and in need. I don't think we could have imagined that 75 years later, we would be responding to the kind of threshold and scale of humanitarian crisis that we see here today. Over 4 million people have crossed the border in the last six plus weeks. 7 million people are internally displaced in Ukraine. I'm actually here standing at the border of, of Ukraine and Poland, and just we're greeting a, a group of Ukrainian refugees. Several thousand a day are coming through this station alone, and they're coming with uh, with just suitcases on their back, maybe their cats or their dogs. We're providing them through Polish uh, Humanitarian Action and other organizations that we're partnered with, just basics. Uh, we, right behind me, you can see diapers. We have food. We have drink. We have just, as, as the volunteers told me today, love and peace that we're greeting them with. And then we're helping them and supporting them along their journey, which, uh, which is how do they get accommodation? How do they get some cash to get through uh, the next days ahead? How do they have a SIM card? And there are humanitarian actors and amazing uh, support from uh, volunteers here in Poland that are um, they're providing some degree of solace to those who have lost everything. I know the, the people there and in many other countries as well, just incredible in this speed of the response and the support they're providing. Michelle, has the conversation evolved from what can we do in the immediacy of this crisis to okay, we were hoping this was going to be uh, perhaps several weeks, a number of months, and now there's a recognition that these people might be displaced, might have to build new lives and be there for perhaps years rather than months. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think we have no certainty about any end in sight. And so people, as they're crossing the border at first are simply saying, I just have to find safety, right? I mean, literally the, the, the house that I was living in was bombed. I had no choice but to leave. But now they're also trying to think about how am I gonna support my family? What kind of job am I gonna be able to find? And keep in mind that you're crossing over to other countries where you likely uh, may not speak the language. And, uh, and so they're also thinking about how do they educate their children? How do they get their, their kids back in school from an interrupted education? Um, and that's also where care and other organizations are starting to um, support so that people can start to think about how do they get through the coming months and how do they rebuild their lives to go forward. This is why what you're doing in Poland is so important. We had the founder of Chobani on this week and he said, you know, you, you don't stop being a refugee just because you get somewhere safe. You stop being a refugee when you start building a life, when you, when you have a job, when your children are being educated. And what you're trying to do in, in Poland is recruit Ukrainian teachers that have been displaced that can perhaps help children who've been traumatized integrate into Polish schools. So it helps the Polish teachers, it helps the Polish children who are now surrounded by other children, but also it helps the grown-ups, the teachers that have lost their jobs in, in Ukraine also get work and start building their lives too. Yeah, I mean, you've just described what is a fairly simple solution to an enormous problem. So first of all, I have to think about over 700,000 children that have crossed over to Poland alone. Uh, I was just in Warsaw yesterday and saw and met with administrators. Imagine you're an administrator who's just gotten through COVID and takes a sigh and then 
have 15,000 and there are 70,000 kids in Warsaw, only 15,000 of them are back in the school system, but they don't speak uh, Polish. And so we're hiring those refugees that were teachers already, that need a job, that are ready to have some stability, and they're going to be the bridge. They're going to be the support. They're going to help ensure that these kids uh, can get back to a little bit of normalcy by speaking their own language and integrating into the Polish school system. So yeah. that's the kind of work that lies ahead for us. What do these, what do these people tell you? Because it's obviously predominantly women who are leaving. What do these women say to you when you say, hi, we're going to recruit you, we're going to give you a job, we're going to pay you a salary to do the thing that you probably love? So much gratitude. If you could see those teachers and they, as they start the, start the process and you know, sign up at the desk, and by the end of the process in which they're leaving with their certificate to go and support and teach for the next three months, just a different kind of attitude. One of the teachers I talked to, she's a fifth grade civics and history teacher. She talked about the fact that she's still doing Zoom calls with her class um, they are all around, spread all around Europe. Some of them are still in Ukraine. And she's just trying to provide them some psychosocial support. And uh, she was so grateful for the opportunity to now teach, to be able to support her own family, her 13-year-old daughter who moved very reluctantly, who left everything that she knew and is now here in a different country. And, uh, and she talked about the fact that she is, it, this is really going to make a difference for the Ukrainian children, which she feels like are, are her broader classroom. And uh, she, she also described what she hoped for, which was such a normal wish. She said, I'm hoping for peace and I'm hoping for the opportunity to have a barbecue with sausages with my <laughs> children, the 35 oh. children from her classroom. I know, I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful story. And the fact that she's still doing the Zoom calls with, with children back in Ukraine as well, it's some degree of stability for all these children that's being provided. Um, I know women, and the protection of women from the initial stages, the trauma, the, as you said, the, the diapers, or in my world, the, the nappies behind you. But it, it goes on from that too to try and tackle things like exploitation, abuse. And when you've got so many people displaced, going off into different areas, Michelle, how do you protect against some of those kind of risks? And, and what's your primary concern today? Yeah, well, as I said, 90% of those who are leaving are women and and children. And so they are particularly vulnerable in any crisis, in any humanitarian situation. It, you just think about the fact that there are, by our CARES estimates, about 80,000 women right now that are gonna give birth that are in Ukraine or leaving Ukraine in the next three months. So think wow. about the extra vulnerability of what that means. Think about gender-based violence, which increases during times of conflict. Think about the fact that people are fleeing with nothing but suitcases. Many wonderful, good people are helping and supporting them and bringing them into their homes, but that can sometimes mean that there is in, there are incidents of exploitation. So we. Care and other organizations are really hoping to ensure that we have that we register people appropriately, that we provide them the right kind of information so that they can be safe, so that we don't take a crisis that has already made them vulnerable and have that vulnerability be exploited. And uh, it's just really important that we are very focused on the specific needs of women and children in this crisis. Michelle, if people want to provide support, if they want to donate, where do they go? How do they help? 
Yeah, I mean, there are ways of both lifting up your voices and also providing resources. So if you go to care.org, you can learn about what CARE's doing. You can learn about the crisis itself and you can um, you can stand up and stand in solidarity. It means so much. As I talked to one of the teachers yesterday who broke down crying and she told me, I never knew that people that I never knew would do so much uh, for me. And um, And you can all be a part of that care.org. We'll tweet that out too. Michelle, thank you to you and your team for your work. Great to have you on. Thanks. Michelle Nunn, President and CEO so of Care USA. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. There are now more than 130 confirmed deaths from Tropical Storm Meggy in the Philippines. More than 300,000 people have been forced from their homes by the storm. It's the first major storm to strike the Philippines this year. Friday morning brought violent clashes between rock-throwing Palestinian youths and Israeli security forces around the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. The Palestinian Red Crescent said that more than 150 Palestinians were injured as Israeli forces fired rubber bullets. The fighting comes during the rare conjunction of Easter, Passover and Ramadan this weekend. South Korea says it will ease most of its COVID restrictions as infections continue to fall. Starting Monday, officials will no longer enforce curfews on businesses or limits on crowd sizes. For now, though, a mask mandate will remain in place, but it could be lifted if the situation continues to improve. OK, coming up, Elon Musk says his takeover bid for Twitter is not about the money. He says it's important for all of humanity. The latest on Musk's multi-billion dollar deal, next. Welcome back. Not a peep or even a tweet from Twitter's board of directors on Elon Musk's audacious multi-billion dollar takeover bid. Musk says yesterday that he can line up the cash, but he admits that his latest moonshot may not succeed. Investors, not all that sure either. Twitter shares finishing Thursday's session down more than one and a half percent, well below Musk's offering price of more than $54 a share. As you can see there, Klesa Bustin joins me now. I do feel like the ball is in Twitter's court here. Either they can say, look, get lost, we're good. We've got our own plans here. They can engage with him and negotiate the price or they can perhaps find a better bidder. But it's interesting that even Elon's like, yeah, this one isn't in the bag. Yeah, he says he's not sure this is going to succeed. Uh, and certainly, as you say, we have not heard anything from the board yet. We know there was a company-wide meeting uh, on Thursday where reportedly the, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, faced some pretty direct questions uh, from staff. There was one uh, that Reuters reported that they heard a portion of that meeting where someone said, are we just going to start inviting any and all billionaires to the board, to which he responded that they are going to act in the best interest of shareholders uh, and that people who are critical of the service, he said, that's who they really need to listen to so they can learn. But, but Elon Musk, he is very clear in his resolve that, that he wants to buy this company. He has very lofty uh, goals for what he thinks its purpose is. And he, uh, he described this, this, these sort of lofty goals uh, in a TED interview that he gave on Thursday. Take a listen. This is not a, a, a way to sort of make money, you know. I think this is, it's just that I think this is, um, this could, my, my strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. 
So, I mean, that is a, an extremely lofty goal. And look, he has a point. We are at a moment uh, in the world where, where information is critical, and Twitter certainly has had to act, certainly throughout the war in Ukraine, to try to, to police that and, and play its role in maintaining safety uh, online. In terms of Musk's actual plans, they're, they're pretty broad. He seems to be fairly laissez-faire in terms of policing content. He says that people should have timeouts rather than being permanently deleted from the platform. He says if there's a gray area or controversy, he would err on the side of letting the tweet exist. But certainly the issue uh, is very complicated and that's, that would not be all that he would have to come up with in terms of plans. Yeah, he's also got a great point that this might not be about the money either uh, at that price because there's no guarantee that actually he could ultimately make money, particularly if he kills the, the advertising revenue stream, I think, which is possibly why some of the biggest shareholders, the likes of Vanguard, I believe, are increasing their shareholding. There's talk of a poison pill, isn't there, perhaps, to try and allow the existing shareholders to dilute him away from the 9% the he's got. So I can only imagine those discussions going on in the, uh, in the boardroom right now. Surely there's an incentive, though, Claire, to try and keep it friendly. I mean, if you want to buy this, then Musk could do with getting his hands on the, the, the numbers for the company and doing the due diligence. And on their part, um, they want to try and prevent him dumping his stock the other side of this if he doesn't get what he wants. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a delicate balancing act. Certainly we got that sense when we heard from, from the CEO about his decision to invite Elon to, to join the board, where he said, look, we're aware of the risks, uh, but we feel like, you know, this is the, the, the benefits of having someone like Elon on the board outweigh those risks. But certainly you're right, there are people uh, who are worried about this offer and, and the value of this offer. Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, the, the prominent Saudi billionaire investor uh, who owns a, a, over 5% of Twitter, uh, he said in a tweet, I don't believe that the proposal offer by Elon Musk comes close to the intrinsic value of Twitter given its growth prospects. He said being one of the largest and long-term shareholders of Twitter, I reject this offer. Elon Musk, though, as I said, very clear in his resolve, continues to be very active himself on Twitter, responded to that, Julia. He said, interesting, just two questions, if I may. How much of Twitter does the kingdom own directly and indirectly? What are the kingdom's views on journalistic freedom of speech. So he is on the offensive. He's not backing down. Uh, but as you say, he's in, he himself is a very high value tweeter. He gets, you know, instant attention for anything uh, he posts on Twitter. So again, because of that, someone that the company wants to keep on side. I wonder if he demands more money, then, then Musk will have to go to $64.20 to keep that 420 in there. He's yeah. sort of limiting himself on his willing mm. price level. Yes. Claire Sebastian, enough of me. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.